0: Well, good morning, good morning. So what an honor and privilege it is to be here this morning, right? Together, together as a church body and worship the Lord. As Jessica said, you know we are here for a purpose. We're gonna talk a lot about that today, but we are here to worship the Lord. That is our primary purpose. So this morning, as I was um, kind of preparing for the day, my dog jumped up beside me. And I remembered something that happened last summer when he got really, really excited, and this dog is kind of crazy, jumped up on me, and apparently his dew claw was a little sharp. So it scratched me all the way down my knee, started bleeding, all kinds of nasty stuff happened there. So this morning when he came and jumped up beside me, and I looked at him and I saw the scar on my knee from him, I said, man, I don't think that will ever go away, trooper, but I love you still. And then I thought, man, some of y'all probably recognize this, but man, our Savior, when the nail went through, I thought, man, he's going to see that scar, and we're going to see that scar forever. But then he says something to us, because we put that nail in his hand. He says, I love you still, and that's why I did it, right? So, amen. So, last time I spoke, I talked about the historic calendar of the church, and that we're currently in a time after Christmas, which we call, which in in the liturgical church calls it the ordinary time. Now, some traditions also refer to this time as the season of Epiphany, because it begins on the day of Epiphany. So it's during this time that we would celebrate the life and teachings of Jesus Christ and what it means to be his disciple. So how fitting is it that we're talking about the discipleship pathway this month and that we're about to close that message today on the last Sunday of the Epiphany season. You see, this Wednesday is the first day of Lent. And it's typically called Ash Wednesday. So you probably know... Some people that celebrate that, you see the ashes on their head, right? So Ash Wednesday is supposed to be a solemn reminder of human mortality. From dust we were formed, and to dust we return. And it's meant to symbolically remind the bearer of his need for reconciliation with God. So the season of Lent lasts about 40 days, and it also is to remind the observer that, of Christ's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights during his time of temptation and testing in the wilderness. So you might be wondering why I'm talking about this, because isn't Ash Wednesday and Lent a Roman Catholic thing? So while we don't technically observe Lent or Ash Wednesday here at TBA, it isn't just a Roman Catholic thing. There are hundreds of thousands of Protestants and evangelicals worldwide that observe the liturgical seasons. And it was also a practice of the early informing church. But talking about Lent does remind me of a story I once heard. You see, there was this guy named John. He used to live in a neighborhood populated mostly by Roman Catholics. And he would drive his neighbors crazy during the time of Lent because every Friday, He'd grill a big, juicy steak on his grill outside, and the smell would just go all throughout the neighborhood. And you know that Catholics give up meat on Fridays, right? During Lent. So one day, the neighbors decided to get together and to do something about this guy. And they were like, I I know. Let's attempt to convert him to Roman Catholicism. So they approached him, and to their surprise, he said, yes, so they took him before the priest who splashed him with holy water who said, you were born a Protestant, you were raised a Protestant, and now you're a Catholic. So the guy John walked away thinking, well, that's pretty easy. And then the next Friday, he opened up his grill and put a steak on it and started grilling out some steaks again. So that his, his neighbors went ballistic. They came running over to him to confront him. And they see him splashing barbecue sauce and saying, you were born a cow, you were raised a cow, but now you're a fish. So the, the good news is we do not need to become Roman Catholic, nor do we near need to swear off red meat to observe a time of reflection on Christ's ministry and our dependence on him. And while the season of Lent is a time to practice spiritual disciplines, like prayer and fasting and giving, it does not necessarily mean that the outward practices such as having ashes on your forehead or eating fish sticks is necessary for us. You see, at TVA, we focus more on the heart of things than participating in the outward signs. But the season of Lent is a great time to begin a new start on practicing the spiritual disciplines. And that's why we're talking about the discipleship pathway this month, and launching into new groups in March, starting next week. We are inviting you to start a new and fresh journey of practicing spiritual disciplines with your church family. So on the slide, you can see there are four parts to the discipleship pathway. And when we started this series, Stivey mentioned a quote from the book, Not a Fan, by Kyle Eidelman. He said, we have more fans in the church than followers in the church. And beloved, Jesus doesn't call us to enjoy the stories about him on Sunday morning and to seek to find a happy life that just happens to include him in it. No, Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Don't let those words go by without grasping how astounding they are. And think about that, what that sounded like to a first century person. It would be like someone saying to us, I'm about to be executed. I want you to follow me. I want you to forget your life, give up your family, your freedom, your desires, and walk with me down death row to the execution chamber. See, Jesus' call to us is a call to death. For us, that means death to sin and death to self. The fans don't give up their life for someone they admire, but followers go wherever their king and their Lord bids them go. And beloved, in the end, to be a disciple of Jesus also means life, and life abundant, and life eternal. That is what God has done. He has sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. Imagine that. The king to whom we owe all allegiance came to dine your place and mine. You see, Kyle Eidelman has another book, which is titled One at a Time. And in it, he talks about Jesus' method for impacting the world. He says, Jesus didn't have thousands of Facebook friends or Instagram followers. He wasn't TikTok famous, He never tweeted, he didn't even have a YouTube channel. And I'm pretty sure he didn't even start a podcast. So how is it that Jesus changed the world? And the next question is like it. How is it that Jesus wants to continue to change the world through us? He did it and we do it one person at a time. So remember how the path of discipleship starts with knowing God through weekly worship prayer and teaching in our corporate setting and then we gather together in smaller communities with each other which can be in the context of men's groups our women's events our focus groups our fellowship events and then the next step is to be a disciple and to make disciples which occurs in focused and intentional d groups of three to five people and finally finally all of that is supposed to point us to our mission you see, as we move from discipleship to impacting our community and the world around us, we do it even at the level of one person at a time. That's something we call living scent. So I want to go to scripture today to get a sense of what living sent means. And speaking of scripture, if you have your Bible, I hope that you do, or your Bible app, I would love with, if you'd open that up. We're going to spend most of the time in the book of Matthew today. So if you wanna mark that, and then later on we're gonna go to 2 Timothy. And today I wanna cover two primary points about how the discipleship pathway and studying scripture necessarily leads us to living on mission. So the first point is that the discipleship journey teaches us who and what Jesus expects us to be when we go out into the world to live sin on mission. See, when we grow as disciples, then we desire to serve others, to teach others, and to evangelize, and to live on mission each and every day. See, the purpose of discipleship isn't just so that you can know more, but so that you can grow more. It's true, you cannot have growing without knowing but it is possible to know and still not grow. So the question is, what are we growing into? And I think that's a good question. And I can't think of a better place to start than Jesus' most famous sermon. So we're gonna take a snapshot of that in Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 13. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Then he said, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, the setting for this passage is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had just finished giving the Beatitudes, which in, them, in themselves are descriptive of what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. And then Jesus makes this very interesting statement that the disciples are salt and light. Now, what's interesting about that is that these statements, these words in in the text do not contain a Greek imperative verb. And what that means is that these are not written as action verbs, but as categories of being. Jesus is telling his disciples that you are the salt and you are the light. So what's important to grasp here is that these are not moral commandments, but statements of fact. So it's often thought and taught that to be salt and light is to participate in like the political landscape or maybe some sort of activism. And those things aren't necessarily wrong, but that's not what Jesus is teaching here. These are metaphors, of course, but what's important is to understand that they tell us how we are to be, not what we are to do. And that's something we have to get We must first be something in someone before we do something. So that famous song, well, I got it wrong. It's not (laughs) do-be-do-be-do, but be-do, be-do, be-do. First we have to be before we do. And in the ancient context, salt was used for two primary purposes, to preserve flavor to preserve and to flavor. Basically, it keeps keeps the meat from rotting and from being tasteless. So here Jesus says that his disciples are the salt of the earth, and by the earth he means all inhabited places across the world. He's talking about the people of the world, the people of the earth. So the great church father John Chrysostom says about this passage. By saying you are salt of the earth, Jesus signifies that all human nature itself has lost its taste, having become rotten through sin. And he requires from his disciples those character traits that are most necessary and useful for the benefit of all. What happens when you ingest salt? It makes you thirsty, right? And while water can quench that kind of thirst, Jesus offers a different type of water and it becomes a well of water springing up for eternal life for all of us. And the thing about springs is that they overflow into the world for the world's benefit and the benefit of others that come to the spring. So to be salt of the earth is to have the characteristics of salt, preserving the gospel and the word that has been delivered to us once and for all and making others thirsty for Christ through the gospel message. And we as disciples are salty because we're in Christ, and Christ seasons us through his divine wisdom. But how does salt lose its saltiness? Salt doesn't naturally lose its flavor, but it can lose its flavor by being mixed with other compounds that dilute it. To be, to be so mixed with other elements in the world means that it is in effect no longer salt. Can you think of elements in the world that would render a disciple less salty? What good is he then but to be trampled under the feet of those who he should have been salt for? Salt is not meant for itself, but for nourishing others. And in the same way, Jesus has called his disciples, that's you and me, for the needs of others and not for ourselves. We are not just to go and serve, but to be servants. That's what we are. Also, light in the same way isn't meant for itself, but by a good light, we can see the path that we're supposed to walk So it's useless to cover or hide a light. It makes no sense in the same way the disciples of Christ are by their very nature the means through which Christ's light is displayed for all the world to see. When disciples do what they are, their good works and their faithfulness are like a lamp shining a light to show the way to the king. So how does that work? Well, some of you probably noticed this strange lamp if you're sitting close that I have out here. This is called a salt lamp. And supposedly it's, it's to help you breathe a little bit better because it puts out ions that remove air particles. And you might wonder if this lamp actually does what it claims to do. To me, it's kind of like those old time remedies that my grandparents used to do. You see, anytime I was sick, my grandfather would pull out some can of something he called salve, and he'd take it and he'd rub it all over my face and all over my neck. And then my grandma would whip up some concoction of different vegetables and minerals and plants and herbs, who knows what else. And she would say something like, let's all drink this, if it doesn't kill us, I think it will help. So, so, so anyways, we bought these things to place in our children's bedrooms at night with the hope that they might help with the allergies and the asthma that they have. As the lamp heats up, it heats the salt and ions are released into the environment and it kills off dust mites and other bad things that are out there. You see, you and I are like that salt lamp. Just by being Christ's disciple, that is we, when we are being intentionally his disciple, through the spiritual disciplines, then we can change the environment that we're in. Now that might look like serving others and doing good things for others on the outside, but it's the Holy Spirit in us that changes the hearts of the people that are in our environments and opens the door for gospel conversations. That is what it means to be salt and light. You and I are called to be a salt lamp for the world and in the world. That's living sin. But watch this. If I remove the salt lamp from its power source, it's no longer doing anything for anyone. It's basically a paperweight. Church, it's the same thing for an unplugged Christian. You cannot be stalled in light unless you're plugged in. So I want to take the rest of our time and drill down on one aspect of spiritual discipleship so that you can see how it leads to living sin. I want to take the rest of our time this morning and look at studying scripture. My thesis about the study of scripture is that we study scripture in our D groups. For us so that now this is going to shock some people but I want, to hear, I want you to hear me out reading and studying the Bible is not necessarily an end in itself and what I mean by that is that there is no purpose behind just studying scripture for the sake of studying scripture so I might have just had my Bible nerd club card revoked in saying that <laughs> but <laughs> don't get me wrong I love studying scripture and learning about the story that shapes it and the cultures that surround it and the proper way to interpret scripture and the theology that is both derived from scripture and informs scripture. And I also stand with King David who said that the word of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul and that it is indeed a blessing to meditate on day and night So far be it from me to ever suggest that you shouldn't study scripture. And actually, I hope that by the end of this message, you are much more inclined to study scripture than you were before. And to do it in a deep study with other people. But I want you to meditate on something for a minute. During Jesus' ministry, he identified a danger in studying scripture. Because his opposers, they were great at studying scripture. They were great at being Bible students, and they were great teachers of Scripture. In John 5, 38, Jesus says, you don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pore over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. In this one statement... Jesus both clarifies the ultimate purpose of scripture and offers a correction for those who misunderstand it. You see, the word of God properly administered accomplishes a lot of things that are important for discipleship. And some of that we will presently discuss. But most importantly, if your reading of scripture doesn't point you to Jesus Christ if it doesn't open your eyes to see the beauty and the majesty and the love that the king has for you and dying for you so that you might live eternally with him, if it doesn't seal in your heart a desire to follow him and convict you of your sin and his righteousness, then my friends, you're missing the point. You see, our God is a God of purpose and order. There is a telos, a purpose-driven end to everything that he does. And that includes the Holy Scriptures. So I want you to see how Scripture is purpose-driven. So turn to 2 Timothy chapter three. Now in this letter, the Apostle Paul is speaking to one of his disciples. And in fact, he calls Timothy his son in the faith. Those are words of closeness and affection we have to remember, church, that we are a community bonded together as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters together in Christ. And 2 Timothy is probably the last letter that Paul wrote before his execution. And in this letter, Paul contrasts faithfulness and compromise. And then he sends some instructions to Timothy to call his people back to studying and knowing the scriptures. And we see him explaining the functions and purposes of scripture in chapter three. So in 2 Timothy chapter three, Paul says, all scripture, yes, Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. So we'll break that down really quick. So first we see that the scriptures are sacred and that they are able to give us wisdom for salvation and faith in Christ Jesus in that passage. And that's another reminder to us, as Jesus said, that the scriptures point to him. And also in this passage specifically, we learn that scripture is inspired by God. And it helps us understand that scripture comes from him. And if it comes from him, then it's going to help us get to know him and his will for us. Now the word of God is purpose-driven and its primary purpose is to draw people to Christ and to establish a love relationship between God and mankind. And the primary context for this process is within the church. See, Timothy was a leader of a church body. And in Scripture itself, you almost always see that the spiritual disciplines, including the discipline of studying Scripture, is done in the context of Christian community. But it also has purposes for those of us that call ourselves his disciple and for those of us that would seek after him. You see, in this passage, Scripture tells us that it is profitable for four other things too. Teaching. Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Beloved church, that's the primary purpose of our meeting together in D groups and focus groups to study Scripture, to hide Scripture in our hearts, and to apply it to our lives so that we might be held accountable to Scripture and to the teachings of Jesus. So going back to the text, if you look at verse 17 again, look at those first two words. It says, so that. See, in scripture, when you see a so that, you know a big point is about to be made. So all of those great things that Paul lists about scripture, that it trains you in doctrine, that it brings you to conviction, that it holds you accountable, and that it teaches you the ways of righteous living, All of that comes down to this one point, a so that. And look at what it says here. It says, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we've uncovered the second great purpose of scripture and studying it. The first and the greatest we've already discussed, it draws you closer to God. But the second is that it equips you for a task. And that's why we have to spend our effort and our time digging into Scripture and studying it so that we might be equipped for every good work. Beloved, we are not saved by good works, but we are most certainly saved for good works. And if you don't believe that, go back and read Ephesians 2 8 and 9. But don't stop there, read verse 10. As Christians and disciples, we are called to be living sin as the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus for the works that God prepared ahead of time for us to do. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, teach them to obey my commandments. And it should probably go without saying, but the implication here is that if you are teaching others to obedient, to be obedient unto Christ, you yourself are being obedient to Christ. And Jesus tells us that our problem isn't ignorance of Scripture, but obedience to Scripture. So we're expected to grow and become the type of person that is obedient. And when we apply the Great Commission here, we say that we use our hands and our feet to go out and serve others. And we use our voice to proclaim the gospel message to others. That is our mission. That is our message. That is how we are obedient. Remember how I mentioned at the beginning how Jesus changed the world. He did it one person at a time. And as Stivey discussed last week, he formed very small groups of disciples. Now the Lord has given the church really great teachers and great preachers and very effective evangelists like Billy Graham. And these are great gifts to the church, but he has called every single one of us to follow him and his way and to be his ambassador. And that looks like more, more like his method of one person at a time on this mission. And if you remember a couple months ago, the pastor stood on the stage and asked you one question. That question is, Who's your one? Let that question sit for a minute. Are you praying for and pursuing that person or that small group of people that God has called you to do? And if the answer is no to that question, is the reason because of a lack of obedience and discipleship? Where are you at on the discipleship pathway? So as you contemplate that and think about that, and as we close, we're going to observe communion today together as a church family. And the band and the servers can go ahead and come on up. So when we observe communion, we are gathering together as disciples at the Lord's table and it's in this way that we participate in that very first Lord's Supper. And those disciples look forward and anticipated Christ's death and resurrection. But here today, we honor him and we practice communion to remember him as we look back to what he did in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And I want you to think and take a moment because I think it's important to communicate that communion is for those of you that have committed your life to Jesus Christ. And if you're unsure of that, why are you unsure? Christ has called you to surrender your life to him and his purposes. I need you to listen to closely right here. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He died for your sin. A righteous, holy God sent his son to die on your behalf. Jesus, who is the king of the universe and all that exists, humbled himself and became a servant, taking on flesh and dwelling among men. He lived a perfect life and he was crucified and died for your sins and mine. And on the third day he rose again and ascended to the Father. And he is calling you to follow him today. If you don't know him, do you want to follow him today? And don't waste this moment. Is Christ calling you? If you have questions about that or need someone to talk to, come back to next steps. There are people there that would love nothing more than to talk to you about what a life in Christ looks like. And we'd love to pray for you. Let no one leave here today saying they have not heard the gospel or had the opportunity to speak with someone. And if you are a follower of Christ and you're ready to take the next step in obedience to join a focus group or a D group, or maybe you're ready to step into leading a group. Come speak to someone at Next Steps and we will give you all the tools that you need to do that. So as we celebrate today in this fellowship, we can also use this time to reflect on what the Lord has done for us and what he is asking for us to do. So when you come to be served communion, you will take the bread and you'll dip it into the cup and consume the elements together. We call that practice intention where we consume the elements together. And one of the reasons that we do that is it's a reminder that it was Christ's body that was covered in blood for us. As an alternative, there are individual bread and cup elements that you can use to partake today. So the Lord Jesus, on the night of his arrest, took the bread And after giving thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take this and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Church, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes again. So as you come up, I want you to reflect on those last few questions that I ask. Who's your one? Where are you at on your discipleship journey? Are you ready to follow your king? When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he also gave us a prayer. So let's begin our remembrance and our communion with him by reciting the prayer that he taught us to pray. So would you stand with me as we recite the Lord's prayer together? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You come and observe communion and fellowship with your savior and your church. Think about those things. And let's not leave here today without leaving us full-fledged Christian discipleships who are following a king who loves you, who has died for you, and who wants you to be obedient unto him. God bless you.